In the second century document, the martyrdom of Polycarp, who was a bishop in Smyrna, we read, the proconsul asked him, Polycarp, if he were Polycarp. And when he admitted it, he tried to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Respect your age, and so forth, as they are accustomed to say. Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, say, Away with the atheists! Away with the atheists! For their neighbours in the second century, Christians were atheists. You see, their pagan neighbours could recognise nothing they associated with religion, with honouring the gods upon whom their welfare depended, in the practices of Christians. Christians had no priests, no temples, no sacrifices, no killing animals to propitiate their gods. All things that were essential features of their neighbours' pagan worship. And so they reasoned that the Christians did not worship any god, that they were atheists. Now, of course, that's a dreadful misunderstanding, for we know Christians have always worshipped the one true creator god. But it's a misunderstanding that testifies to, witnesses to, how the death of Jesus changed everything. We'll see in today's passage that it is the death of Jesus that means Christians make no more atoning animal sacrifices. The death of Jesus that gives a new identity beyond Judaism with its priests and rituals and special foods. The death of Jesus that creates a new worship where sacrifice, the sacrifice God wants can be made by any believer at any time in any place. Oh, it's the death of Jesus that meant the behaviour of Christians would come to so puzzle their pagan neighbours in the second century that they thought they were atheists. And the challenge for each of us as we look at this passage is to ask and answer these questions. Do I understand the significance of the death of Jesus, how it's changed everything? That's a question for all of us, believer or unbeliever. But if you're a believer, there are some other questions. Have I embraced my new identity that comes from the death of Jesus and am I giving God the worship, the service he says he wants? Now, and if we're believers, we should also ask, does that life of worship puzzle my neighbours, raise questions in their mind about the God I worship? But uh, to answer those questions, we have to first do some hard work through some verses which are full of allusion to the Old Testament. <coughs> do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. From the beginning, Hebrews has been seeking to persuade some Jewish Christians that they must not abandon faith in Jesus and go back to Judaism, that they must not get sluggish in their following of Jesus and allow themselves to drift back to their old way of life. Here in our passage, verses 9 to 16 of the last chapter of Hebrews, is our author's final call to persevere with Jesus, to not go back. It's brief because 
coming at the end of the letter, it can draw on, expect the listener to know all that he has said about Jesus and his death. And so he starts by reminding them of the uselessness, verse 9, of foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. In the context, which is contrasting these foods with the grace we receive through trusting Jesus who is always the same, which moves from talking about food, verse 9, to Jewish sacrifices in verse 10. And where the word devoted is literally walking in, foods is understood to be Jewish food practices and rules. Living your life according to the requirement of Jewish food laws, thinking that they will make you or keep you holy. And that includes sharing in synagogue fellowship meals that conform to these laws. Meals that were designed to be copies of the meals that followed sacrifice in the temple and were thought to bring blessing. It's the pull of Judaism that our author is again telling his hearers they must resist. A Judaism that has at its heart the sacrificial provisions of the Old Testament and the work of the priests and the high priests to make sacrifices for sin. So our author's telling them that these practices have no benefit in bringing you to God, strengthening your relationship to him, bringing you to experience God's grace. And why? Well, verse 10, we believers have an altar from which those who serve the tent, that is the Jewish priests, have no right to. Why? Because there's been a great change. Just as so much is new with Jesus, a new covenant, a new high priest, believers have another, a new altar, which is different from the altar of the Old Testament faith at which the priests made their animal sacrifices, sacrifices from which they were also permitted to eat. The believer's altar is independent of the priests and their rights and privileges. The believer's altar has nothing to do with that Old Testament altar. Now, of course, he's not talking of a physical altar, either here or in heaven. An altar is the place where a sacrifice is made, where the slain body of the animal is placed before the God. Now, so altar is another way of talking of the sacrifice that's already been made for believers. And of course, the altar for believers is the sacrifice of Jesus. To help us understand the nature of the death of Jesus for sin, what his death has done for believers, our author now moves from pointing out that the Old Testament priests have no part in this sacrifice, no right to eat at this altar, the believer's altar, to then presenting Jesus' death in terms of another sacrifice from which no one, including the priests of the Old Testament, had a right to eat. Uh, that sacrifice uh, that verse 11 tells us involves the burning of the sacrificial animals' bodies outside the camp is the sacrifice that was made by the high priest on the Day of Atonement every year, year after year. On that day, a bull and a goat were sacrificed and their blood brought in to the most holy place and sprinkled before the ark on some of the furniture and on some of the furniture of the tabernacle to atone for, cover over the sin of the people. And so in verse 16 of Leviticus 16 it says, 
Thus the high priest, he the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so, so shall he do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in their midst. You see, the blood of those sacrifices was sprinkled in the most holy place to atone for sin. But of course we know from Hebrews chapter 7 to 10 that the repetition of that sacrifice year after year showed that it never really dealt with sin. That in cleansing the furniture, the externals, it was really pointing beyond itself to the need for a better sacrifice that would really deal with our sin, our inner defilement. Deal with it once and for all that would cleanse our consciences from sin. And so our author in verse 12 points out a feature of Jesus' death, we'll see it's there in John 19, that helps us see how Jesus' death deliberately fulfills the Day of Atonement rituals. He says, as the bodies of the sacrificed animals were taken outside the camp, outside the holy precinct, so Jesus also suffered, died outside the city of Jerusalem, which was again reckoned to be a holy precinct, in order that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. Now the arguments, and, and we do see that in John 19, by the way, Jesus is crucified outside Jerusalem. So here, in a sense, his reflection on the Old Testament ritual intersects with history, the history of Jesus' death. Now the argument has been pretty dense to this point, hasn't it? Calling on a lot of background knowledge. But here in verse 12, the author gets to his main point, which is another restatement of the point he's made throughout the book. He's saying to his hearers and to us, you must not go back to Judaism, its rules, rituals and sacrifices, because they are useless. Jesus' death is the sacrifice that fulfills the Day of Atonement sacrifice. Jesus' death is the sacrifice that the Day of Atonement ritual was pointing to. Jesus' death is the atoning sacrifice that really deals with the sin of God's people that cleanses them, their being, their whole person, from defilement, the defilement of disobedience and rebellion to God. It sanctifies believers, that is, makes them holy, once and for all. Now that's his main point and there is a lot in that. Relying on all that he said in the earlier chapters for the reader to get the full force of the point he's making. But if you've just, as it were, dropped into Hebrews today, just visiting, or if what we saw in chapters 7 to 10 was really a, a fair while ago because we've taken forever to get through chapter 13, or if you found his way of getting to his point a little complicated because you personally have never been tempted by Jewish food laws. Well, our author is saying in verse 12 these things. He's saying Jesus' death has done what you could never do. Jesus' death has done all that needs to be done to fit those who believe in him to live with God. Jesus' death has changed a believer's relationship with God forever. Jesus' death means the end of temple, priest and animal blood sacrifices. Oh, and yes, as we'll see later in the passage, Jesus' death means the believer's identity has changed and so has the believer's worship. Let me unpack some of those things for you. 
Jesus' death has done what you could never do. As we've said in the baptism, you could never sanctify yourself. Now, of course, if the language of sanctification is unfamiliar, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, I've never even tried, in fact. No, let's think about that. To sanctify is to make holy. It's language drawn from the Old Testament, and it's speaking of a need we all have. You see, to be sanctified, to be made holy, is to be made fit for the presence of the holy, just, living, creator, God. Being sanctified is about being able to live at peace with God. You see, without Jesus, you and I are unfit for God's presence. We have no peace with God. We can't live with him. And that's because you and I are sinners, people who've rebelled against God by choosing to do what we want rather than what God commands, people who've substituted our rule over ourselves and God's creation for his rule, sinners who use what God has given us, our lives, our brains, our tongues, our money, without giving God thanks, people who really want to ignore God and just push him out of our lives. And that sinful attitude is, is deep-rooted, affecting every part of us. Now, what is the effect of that sin? Well, it's made our lives and our world a mess, hasn't it? Broken homes, the grief of betrayal, the fear that comes from living with anger and violence, warfare, a countryside desolated by greed, a breakdown in trust, say, through lies and the loneliness that comes with that. We see the effects of sin all around us every day. But what's the effect of our sin on our relationship with the Creator God? Well, one way of thinking about that is that it's made us liable to God's just judgment. That is, people who will never know peace with God because we know that what we will receive when we come into God's presence, and we will, is what we deserve for what we have done, death. Another way of thinking about the effect of our sin as we talked about at the baptism, is that our sin makes us unclean. You know, to give a picture of that, not the Jack picture, but we've actually become, in our sin, like someone who's been cleaning out the septic tank with our hands and rolled around a little inside while they were doing it and then tries to go inside without a change or shower. Everything they touch is smeared and defiled. Our sin has made us a bad smell in God's nostrils. We are people whose presence he won't abide in his presence. Now, if God's not big in your consciousness, that may not bother you. But it should because God is big in reality, whether or not he's in your thinking. He's the source of all the good we have, the giver and taker of life, the just judge of all our actions, who will certainly give our sin what it deserves. We're unfit for God's presence because of our sin and we can never make ourselves fit. We can't undo what we've done. We can't cleanse ourselves. Like Lady Macbeth's foul spot, no scrubbing will ever get rid of the stain of our sin from our souls. Religious works, reciting set prayers, lighting candles, leaving food for idols, things that only touch the outside, that can't make us clean. I mean, the rituals of the Old Testament were God-given, but they could not cleanse the consciences of those who practised them. They couldn't purify the inside. 
And so our made-up ones definitely won't. Giving money to good causes, volunteering, working with the poor, all good things. But they don't make us clean. They don't remove our sin. They don't make up for our rebellion. Oh, and just showing up at church, that won't make us clean. We can't make ourselves fit for God's presence. We can't cleanse ourselves. The stain of our sin is too deep. But Jesus' death has done all that needs to be done to fit those who believe in him, to fit those who believe in him to live with God. Verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. <coughs> like the blood of the Atonement Day sacrifices, cleansed, sanctified the tabernacle and its furniture, Jesus' death, his shedding of his blood on the cross cleanses believers in Jesus, sanctifies them, makes us holy. That is, it makes us able to live in the presence of the holy God. Jesus' blood removes the deep-seated stain of our sin from our souls so we can appear now before God without a spot or stain or any blemish. In his death, in Jesus' death, Believers have actually died the death God's just law demanded for our rebellion. So we won't be judged again. We need not fear death in God's presence. Sanctified, believers are welcome, at peace in the presence of the living and just God. And in Hebrews, we've already seen Hebrews 10, that we are sanctified by Jesus' death once and for all. Verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected for all time. That is, Jesus' death, his one sacrifice of himself on the cross, has done all that needs to be done to fit us for God's presence forever, to fit us to live in his presence in the new heaven and earth. Now that's a very big thought, isn't it? And it's a reason to make that sacrifice of praise we're called to make in verse 15. It's saying that so precious is the life of Jesus, of such infinite worth is his death, that there is no sin for which it cannot atone, no stain of disobedience that it cannot remove from us forever, no matter how deep-seated and shameful it is. It says that because of Jesus' death, God will never have a cause, never see anything in us that would cause him to drive us out of his presence forever. Jesus' death has changed a believer's relationship with God forever, now in making us able to draw near to God and for eternity, fitting, him by that, fitting us by that one sacrifice to live in the heavenly city, in the new heaven and earth. And so, Jesus' death, the only effective sacrifice for sin, means the end of temple, priest and animal blood sacrifices, atoning sacrifices. It's because Jesus has sanctified us by his blood that we don't need any other sacrifice for sin. He's done it. And if we don't need sacrifices, we don't need sacrificing priests, special people to make those sacrifices. And we don't need special tables, altars on which to make sacrifices. And we don't need specially holy places, temples where this sacred furniture can be housed and where this sacred activity goes on. 
And we don't need external rituals like food regulations to keep us holy. It's because Jesus' death was effective in dealing with our sin that, well, in the second century, believers were reckoned atheists by their pagan neighbours. And it's why in the 21st century, going back to temples and sacrifices and priests and rituals is useless and an insult to the Lord Jesus by denying the effectiveness of his death. So do you get what Jesus has done? Do you know its power and effectiveness so that you rely on Jesus alone for peace with God, for welcome into God's presence, for being raised to life eternal? Rely on his death alone and not on what you have done or are doing or may do. Do you get what Jesus has done? And Jesus' death means the believer's identity has changed and we now have a new worship and a new sacrifice. Our author calls on his first hearers in verse 13 to go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he, Jesus, endured. Now the camp was a way of speaking of the Jewish synagogue community by allusion to the community of Israel in the wilderness. Now Jesus had been reckoned unholy, unfit to be kept inside the community, the city of Jerusalem, rejected as a blasphemer and then reckoned accursed because of his death on the cross. He suffered outside. Believers are now called to join Jesus outside, to leave the security, the comfort, the respectability of being inside, inside their community called to share, like Moses, the reproach of Christ. That is, to share Jesus' shame, the shame of the cross, the shame that was his because he chose to obey God, to be faithful to his Father and do his will in a world of rebellion against God. See, that call here in Hebrews to go to Jesus outside is actually the same call Jesus has made to us all in the Gospels. It's the call to follow him. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The call to deny ourselves, that is, to repent, to give up being the boss of our own lives, pursuing our own pleasures and comfort, living for ourselves and to bear that same cross, to have the same willingness as Jesus had, to suffer loss, grief and pain to endure shame and exclusion for the sake of obeying our Father God, whom we now obey by listening to his Son Jesus and doing what he says. It's a call to set our feet in the path Jesus has taken of love of God and love of others, no matter the cost, trusting the Father. In Hebrews, that call is focused on calling the believers to live publicly, as followers, as disciples of Jesus, to have our identity and security now, not in belonging to this group or that, whether it's our family or our footy team or our friendship group or our ethnic group, but to have our identity in being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. It's a call to live publicly as a follower of Jesus in a community 
like ours, that disapproves of Jesus. Now that public identification may cost, will cost, as it has cost Christians over the centuries. The cost of loss of security, family, social support, loss of reputation, especially in our society, of being thought harsh and condemnatory because you say, stick to the Bible's teaching about the relationship of the sexes, or the cost of being thought unreal or otherworldly. It may even cost, as it did for Polycarp, that bishop in the second century, our lives. But we are called to go out to him, bearing the reproach he bore. And notice that. We do go to him, to Jesus. Leaving the camp, leaving the city, leaving the community, we are not alone, never alone, but in company with our loving and living Lord whose obedience was vindicated by God in raising him from the dead. And in being his, having our identity as his followers, we now have a new belonging, a new city, a new hope. Here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city that is to come. Believers in Jesus are now citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem and pilgrims and strangers on earth. And that is wonderful because nothing is lasting here. But the city to come endures forever. You see, giving up all for Jesus, going outside to him, only means you lose what you were always going to lose. That's right, isn't it? Naked we came from the womb and naked we depart. At the end we take nothing with us, no love, no reputation, no homes, no families. We lose all in death. Giving up all for Jesus means you can only lose what you are always going to lose to gain what really matters. Peace with God, wholeness, life in the new heaven and the new earth to gain what could never have been yours except through Jesus, to gain what can never be taken away from you. For your citizenship is secured by his death forever. So if you're a believer in Jesus, is that how you think of yourself? Have you come out to Jesus? Have you publicly identified yourself in your family or your workplace or your school as his follower? Come out in an age that still restricts, re rejects Jesus and wants to drive him from public life. Have you come out to Jesus knowing that by his death outside the gate you have a sure hope and a heavenly destination? Well, the effective work of Jesus and the new identity we have as his followers, as citizens of the lasting city, means we also have a new worship. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, this whole section of Hebrews has started with the call to worship God acceptably in chapter 12, verse 28. And then it concludes with the call here to offer God acceptable, pleasing sacrifices. Whole section from 1228 on has been describing a whole life of acceptable worship or service of our God who is the consuming fire. 
This call for sacrifice is now the climax of that description of a whole life of worship. And remember that for the first hearers, whether they were Jews or pagans, sacrifice had been central and essential to their worship of God, part of their lives. <coughs> that sacrifice, of course, was literal, not metaphorical. It involved lots of animals and lots of blood. But our authors just told them and us of the end of those sacrifices because of the effective atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And so, of course, the first hearers had a natural question. If those sacrifices are gone, what do we do to please God, to serve or worship God? Because that's what we thought we were doing in those sacrifices. Now, to bring home the greatness of the change Jesus makes and to reinforce by saying we make another kind of sacrifice, that there are now no atoning sacrifices, our author answers by giving this description of this different sacrifice. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Trusting Jesus, relying on his work, what God calls for and will accept is our praise. Confessing him, Father, Son and Spirit as our saving God. Thanking him for sending our Saviour Jesus. Praising him for that salvation we receive through Jesus' death. That's right. Praising him for its benefits, for being forgiven, made holy, adopted as God's children, for being given access to his presence and help, for being brought to the heavenly city, for being given the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is all ours in trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and that is worth giving thanks for and praise for, isn't it? But it also tells us we can only praise the creator God truly where we confess his son Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And he is talking about verbal praise. It's the fruit of lips to be offered to God. And we're to Make this praise, it says, continually. Let us continually. Sometimes in public, sometimes in private, sometimes in company, sometimes alone, sometimes with music, sometimes without, sometimes in song, sometimes in prose, at meals or fasting, when times are good or when times are tough, like Paul and Silas in Acts, singing hymns in the jail in Philippi. Praise is now our sacrifice to be offered continually. All times are good for sacrifice. And yes, doing good and sharing is the sacrifices that are pleasing to God as well. He's talking about acts of kindness and generosity to others, and it is acts, deeds, not just thoughts or words called for. You know, it's only the, it's the thought that counts, of course. It's one of the lamest excuses for failure, you know, that was ever made. Deeds count. Doing counts. And that generosity is the sharing of our material goods and the wealth with those who need them. Now, you see, what we've been brought to in verses 15 to 16 is back to the beginning of this section Remember there, true worship is by means of thankfulness. For Jesus and what he has done, the kingdom he's brought us. And it's shown in living a life of love together as followers of Jesus. 
seen in acts of kindness and generosity, looking after strangers and those suffering and those persecuted for Jesus' sake. This worship and these sacrifices are so different from the religions of the world who are still trying to impress God to gain his favour by what they do. Our worship, our sacrifice is a response to what God has done in his son. Oh, of course, this worship may be different from the religion of your heart where you are still trying to earn your way with God rather than just accept what he has done for you in Jesus. And these sacrifices so different are also so good, aren't they? Because praise sustains our faith and hope by reminding us of what God has done and what he's promised us and how good he is. And kind acts and generosity sustain our life together. The means God gives us to encourage each other to persevere and both honour Jesus and bring others to thank our God. So if you're a believer, live this life of grateful sacrifice, of the worship that embraces the whole of our lives at every time and in every place. And don't go back to narrow views of worship that restricted, if not in theory, in practice, that restricted to what you do in church or even to singing songs. That restriction of worship to something like singing just confuses us about the response God requires from us every day, the giving of the whole of our life to Christ. Oh, and that restriction aids our self-deception where we can claim we're worshipping the living God because we sing a lot, but we're actually but we are not denying ourselves. Where we can feel we are so religious, moved wonderfully by the singing, we're actually not practising the religion God requires, which is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping yourself unstained from the world. That takes a whole lot more time and effort. Oh, it can aid our self-deception where we feel free to spend so much money on worship music but not be generous to the poor. Most of our worship is out there in the world, not in the auditorium. For since the death of Jesus, all places and all times are now fit for the worship of our loving Creator God, for making the sacrifices that please him. And to avoid this narrowing, to help you avoid this narrowing, you won't hear our music leaders, who serve us so well in helping our common sacrifice of praise, called worship leaders. And if you do, it's because someone slipped up and it's a mistake, okay? You won't. And we don't start our services by saying, let us worship God. No, that's actually a much more appropriate way to end the service, isn't it? Go and worship God. Do good in the world. Confess him and praise him wherever you are at all times. When you wake, when you share a meal, when you go to sleep, when you start your work. We mustn't go back to narrow views of worship. And we mustn't go back to language that betrays the work of Jesus, calling ministers priests, calling tables altars, and to help you avoid that confusion, as long as I'm here, we'll keep that plastic table just there. 
at the Lord's Supper. You'll never think that's an altar. That's good, especially after you've had your coffee on it afterwards. Right, uh, we'll be calling out, we, we won't call our meeting places sanctuaries as if they're specially holy. And we will never suggest that anything we do deals with our sin or that our holiness depends on rituals and regulations about externals and not on the death of Jesus. We mustn't go back to narrow views of worship. We mustn't go back to language that betrays the work of Jesus. Rather, we should be determined to puzzle our neighbours by showing how good it is to give God the worship he says he wants. Puzzle them by living a life that makes no sense unless Jesus has changed everything through his death. Puzzle them by living a life marked by a willingness to identify with Jesus, to be publicly his, a willingness to suffer loss and experience shame for the sake of being faithful to him and doing what God says. Puzzle them by living a life characterised by a confident hope that has content and a hope that makes you generous with this world's possessions, not storing up here because you are looking for and living as citizens of the heavenly city. Puzzle them by living a life of generous love that looks to the needs of others. Puzzle them by living a life of constant thankfulness even in your trials. For you always have reason to make the sacrifice of praise, don't you, if you're a believer. You are sanctified now and forever by the death of your loving Saviour. You are fitted for the presence of God. You can draw near to him now. You know he will receive you with himself forever when he makes all things new. Puzzle them enough so that they listen when you talk of that Saviour, your Lord Jesus, who loved you and suffered outside the camp to make you holy by his blood. If you're a believer, ask yourself, look over your life, am I worshipping my God acceptably? Let's pray.